This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello, hello, hello. This is Jackie again, uh, and we are doing another episode of Tushalicious Talk. And today we are doing an episode called The Other Faith Leaders. I have Nitrin Buddhism Practicer D. Freeland. Thank you for being here. And then again, I have Taz Al Michael. He is the Leadership and Liberal Arts Coach at Mercy School Islamic Institute on top of his many other, uh, what's the word I want to say here? I wear a lot of hats. Yes, you wear a lot of hats. So A complete outfit. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us what you do a little bit up there. What's the exact role of, like, what class do you teach? Uh, And what exactly is the Islamic Institute? Yeah. So Mercy School Institution is a K through 12 institute located in Edmond. So we're a private school. Um, primarily, again, just like any other religious private institution, we teach everything that you need to know about K through 12 education with an Islamic twist on top of that. My specific role as a leadership and liberal arts coach is I teach young people communications, teach them how they can be a leader in not just the boardroom, but in their communities um, and see themselves even either in positions of private or public office, whatever that may look like to them. I've got a class of primarily young women. And so, you know, I make this joke that if I haven't taught them how to talk back to their fathers at one point, I didn't do my job. So (laughs) that's a a little bit of what I do. Um, Leadership is a very big component uh, in Islam. We, We say like you are, everybody has their own flock. And you lead said flock. That's so, right. That's yeah. right. Yes. And so in leadership, Miss D, what exactly do you do with Nichiren Buddhism, please? Okay. As far as leadership is concerned. Yeah. We do a lot of community outreach because people don't understand Buddhism for one thing. And no, we do not pray to statues and rub hot-bellied statues or, you know, any of that stuff or wear robes. Now, there are some sects that probably do because there are over 2,000 sects of Buddhism in the world. But I practice the Buddhism revolutionized by a monk named Nichiren in the 13th century. And Buddhism started in India with Shakyamuni. And it traveled through the Silk Road. It is said that he taught 80,000, 84,000 sutras in his lifetime. And, of course, some of these were relatively primitive. Buddhism is divided up into several um, uh, areas, Hinayana and Mahayana. This is later Mahayana. And basically the difference with us, everybody has the... uh, Everybody has Buddhahood in their life. Everyone is a Buddha and everyone has this potential. It's just a matter of how you bring it out. And we do it by chanting a mantra. And basically, I guess we'd say that it's happiness for everyone. Can't be happy if anybody else is unhappy. And um, I mean, me personally, where I do a lot of outreach or have done over the past years that I've practiced, is with anti-war and abolishing nuclear weapons. That's why I started with this practice. That was the first thing that interested me. 
I'm originally from New York City, born in Harlem. New York is not exactly, <laughs> it's not exactly an easy place to live at all times. And I saw a lot of suffering and just a lot of things around me and had no answers. And Buddhism gave me those answers. So that's why I started practicing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, you know, and I've practiced in different countries. You know, I was able to leave America and see a little bit of the world. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to know how do other people live? What countries? Africa, uh, European countries, Turkey, um, um, Italy, the countries I lived in, Italy, uh, the new German states after the war, well, when the wall fell, Germany, of course, mm-hmm. Austria, uh, Hungary. And were you able to find other um, practicers of Buddhism in each place that you lived? Yeah. There were, yes, I did. Actually, some places, when I visited Greece, it was forbidden to practice anything else. And during the time when I visited Hungary, the wall was still up. And although there were Buddhists practicing, it was kind of, you know, like you weren't allowed to meet and congregate. Like we congregate and chant together. Mm-hmm. I think Tina Turner has done Uh, videos where you can see people chanting. And uh, it was interesting because, of course, this changed. And we have members who lived in places like Iran and Israel also. So, and and there have been times, I mean, when I visited Africa, that particular country, people are very, very um, militant about their religious philosophies Mm -hmm. and you have to be I was warned to be very careful because when I went to Africa I had never been anywhere really and that was an awakening but at least it gave me a foundation for the rest of my travels. Very interesting very interesting Um, I will say that I have been to the Sokogakai temple here in Oklahoma City two times before but it was years ago one time I brought my daughters with me. I think my son was with me too, but this was probably at least six years ago or so downtown. Um, and oh, I yeah, did. When we were down, yeah, we opened that one. I was very, I did a lot of work on that when we opened that because we used to be out on 36th Street. We had a pretty big place. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to a nice, to a place downtown, which is much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very positive experience. Oh, I'm glad. So, um, for myself, um, I say that I am agnostic. I'm actually an ordained agnostic minister. Um, but above all, I would say that I'm pagan and I believe in responsible hedonism. <laughs> you get one life living. It, right. yeah. Well, well that goes right along with Buddhism. Yeah, so I do actually, and funny that you bring up Tina Turner because I do actually do the Namyoho Rangankyo chat. And I do some comedic chants and other chants um, that, you know, that bring me focus. And especially like if there's so much going on and I need to regroup, you know, even while I'm driving, I'll just sit, I'll chant sometimes, turn the radio off and just until I get from A to B. And you chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I do very often. I have a sound bowl. I have the 
symbols. Um, I have a little uh, hand ukulele from Hawaii. Oh, you got it all. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have a lot. I have a lot. Yes, to keep my brain in one place because there's always so much going on. So, but growing up, a very Christian, very strict Baptist background. So um, definitely people in my family are not happy with the fact that I'm not Christian anymore. Um, But, you know, the road took me on a different route. So that's where I'm at. So I'm interested in when you were a child, was your religion the same as what you practice right now? I think for Diana, would that answer be no? Yeah, that would be no. So what what did you practice as a child? Okay, well, as a child, I went to a church. Uh Uh-huh. You know, uh, my I wouldn't say that my family was particularly religious. They basically went because they liked to sing. My mother was a pretty talented singer. and She liked to sing and she liked music. So that was her attraction. Also, the then minister was a community organizer. Mm. And we fell into, uh, we fell, I mean, Harlem in the uh, 40s. And 50s was, you know, not such an easy place always. Mm-hmm. And so that was great. And my mother had, you know, she was having a hard time like a lot of people. So that was in a way trying to raise me. And anyway, she and my aunt decided to go to church. And, you know, churches were very different in those days, perhaps, because they offered community. They offered food, you know, like we, you know, like meals and stuff for people because people were poor. This is after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. But I soon uh, decided that that wasn't a philosophical direction that I wanted to go in. And with 13, I decided that was the end and I wasn't going to go anymore. And um, I kind of looked, I dibbled and dabbled. I was curious about a lot of things. I was open to a lot of different people, mm-hmm. and that was New York, you know, and this is New York. Then as I reached adulthood and became, a, it's really a melting pot of a lot of different people. So that was how it started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Tess? So I have been a Muslim for as long as I can remember, but I think what that term means to me has significantly changed over the course of my life. So to to be very simple, the word Muslim is means one who submits and specifically what it infers is one who submits to God. Um, in Arabic, the word Muslim is derived from the word Islam, which is comes from the root word salam, which means peace. Um, you know, Arabic is a, it, it was an evolving language, but shares a lot of roots with like Swahili, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of terms across the Middle East that have been picked up and by like Persian or Sanskrit and whatnot. I mean, all of those areas were kind of like in contact with each other for thousands of years. So for me, you know, we came to the United States in 2000. My mom and my dad identify as Sunni Muslim, which is the predominant sect in Islam. But I find myself as somebody who finds a lot of different pieces. Like, you know, the two biggest branches are Sunni and Shia. 
which Shia literally just means other party. Within Islam, there was a political struggle, a tribal struggle Mm -hmm. as to who would be uh, leading the faith after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, And then there's Sufism, which is very much so the mystical very much similar to Buddhism in terms of inwardness, right? Looking at how do we connect with divine love? How are we, a lot of it is a, a very artistic, a lot of chanting and stuff as well. And so, um, you know, my family's from Bangladesh. And so Islam doesn't look the same all over the world. Um, you know, you look at India, for example, and you look at South Asia, which is an incredibly rich place of spirituality. Right. With thousands and thousands of different tribes, you know, you look at Hinduism in itself. Right. And you can't even put that in a box. Like everybody has their own personal deity, their own styles that they even believe in. There's some aspects of Hinduism that adopts the Buddha as as, as an avatar of Vishnu. Um, and for us, you know, when Islam had made its way to Bangladesh, one the, the way that the country was kind of formed prior to uh, British colonization was we had uh, what's called the descent of a thousand teachers. So a lot of Sufi um, teachers or, you know, the uh, spiritual leaders that came and, and effectively created a spiritual revolution that you had Hindus and Buddhists and even some uh, Jesuit Christians all come together and really take charge for the people. And so for me as a Muslim, like I, I, I view it in a much larger context now. Um, conservative Islam um, f- falls under a lot of like Salafism, what you might see in places like Saudi Arabia, for example. And then there's the rest of us who are in all sorts of different kinds of sects. In Islam, we have this predominant concept where we believe that uh, God had sent 124,000 prophets to each and every single nation. Mm-hmm. So every tribe, every ethnicity, every race receive access to the message in one point or another. And that's where we divert away from um, our fellow Judeo-Christian counterparts, where it wasn't just the Israelites or the Jews who had access to God's word, but everybody did. And that over time, as a result of human influence or power, that word was altered. So another thing to, um, I'll kind of, finish with this, but like a a lot of different progressive um, Islamic perspectives, you know, in the Quran, which is like our holiest text, you know, we refer to an individual known as Dul Kifl, which in Arabic, there's no letter P. So if we were to translate it back to the original Sanskrit, it'd be Kapil. And Kapil is where Siddhartha had spent three years of his life preaching, teaching, and meditating. And so for some Muslims, we do acknowledge the Buddha as being a potential prophet. It is not agreed on or a consensus, but I do fall under that category of these folks were preaching the same message. So Wow. Wow. I'm so glad that you guys came. You guys have so much information. Um, when I wanted to, when the thought came to me to put this um, episode together, um, it was, and I also, I did invite a Christian pastor and I also invited a, a priestess slash witch. And unfortunately they were, um, unavailable. Um, but I always get a lot, especially because I do so much advocacy, um, uh, invited to a lot of events where people are like, well, all of the faith leaders will be there. 
And then when I show up at these events, there's only Christian leaders there. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, and, and even in a broad scope when answering this question, what has been your overall and your everyday experience in Oklahoma in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Can I start? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So there was a point in time where the Oklahoma state government was trying to ban Sharia law. Like this was like, the I, remember, er- I think I was here by then. Yeah. It was like the early to 2000s to mid 2000s. Uh, nah, I didn't. I it was later. You know, I mean, <laughs> even when like, you know, President Obama was getting elected, they were like, we don't want that Muslim to be elected. The president, because you know, his middle name is Hussein, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, Oklahoma, <laughs> Oklahoma has in some ways been great to be a Muslim in because they're, especially from when you're from more of like a minoritized like faith group, we, we tend to get along a lot better than like the overarching like Christian homogeny that's here. But in other ways, it's been like not great because they, you know, especially when you see things such as like, you know, the military's interference in the in the Middle East and even the, the the perception of foreigners as a whole, Islam is looked at as like this completely like a, a vo- like pervasive, like it's a, it's like a pervasive influence. It's like we don't want that here. Mm-hmm. And what people don't seem to realize is like, you know, it's that's not to me like I don't see that as a blame of Christianity as a whole. I see that as a very staunchly conservative act because I because I've met super duper conservative Muslims and and I see sometimes the rhetoric is very similar to what's being used. Yeah. Um, or even, for example, when we talk about like the Rohingya in, from Burma making their way into Bangladesh, an indigenous Muslim group who Burma is a predominantly Buddhist nation. I was like, I didn't know you had a radical Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me. Th- well, I yeah, I heard of there are some sects. Right. I mean, if you look at how Buddhism traveled, the Silk Route, um, I don't know. I don't consider myself an authority. When I first started practicing, people said that Zen was an offshoot because it didn't start off as original teachings, but it allowed, especially in Japan, the samurai to kill people <laughs> and to, you know, war to make war or to protect to protect themselves. It wasn't necessarily so peaceful. If you know anything about the samurai, it was feudalism. And this is how this sect of Buddhism came about because Nichiren Daishonin was convinced from reading the teachings and studying that the catastrophes that were happening at that time were the result of people not living in harmony with themselves and with each other. And it had an effect on the environment. And so he remonstrated with the government, which made him very unpopular. They actually tried several times to execute him. However, he didn't get executed. They exiled him instead. And then they just gave up because there were too many things that showed them that maybe we need to leave this man alone. And so anyway, um, that was oppositional. And even today, there are a lot of oppositional forces because 
uh, Nichiren, oh, actually Buddhism was based, the teachings that we follow, the Lotus Sutra, said that women are equal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that there is no difference in that sense and that they have the Buddha nature too. And women were not worth very much at that particular period in time. And so uh, there were a lot of different revolutionary ideas. And um, Buddhism is very accepting because I noticed that when I came, or rather in America particularly, Sunday or is the most segregated time because this is when people go off into their little mm-hmm. uh, groups. Religious practice. Yeah. And Buddhism doesn't do that. I mean, we have everybody. We have Jewish people. We have Muslims. We have black, white, red, yellow, green, you know, whatever. We've got all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the first things I think that Americans notice when they get together at one of our centers we don't really have temples. Yeah. And, um, you know, that it's open for everybody. Mm-hmm. We accept everybody because we're all considered equal. Mm-hmm. In that it, sense. it is definitely one of the things that I noticed that is very diverse when I did go. Yeah. Um, and then tack on to what you said about, you know, the harmony being off balance in people. I think that there's, or I don't think that I know that there are extremes in every religion. So, like, I do know, I don't know any Satanists here in Oklahoma, but I do, do know quite a couple of Satanists. And if you were to Google the Satanic commandments, mm-hmm. um, there it's very logical. It's very pragmatic, like mm-hmm. common sense type things. But then you've also got the stereotypical Satanic people who that you see all over TV that are doing all these you know, blood sacrifices and so forth and so on. And unfortunately, some of those people exist. But then one thing that people don't think about is that also exists in Christianity. You've got a lot of Christians that are very common sense, very, you know, accepting. They abide by diversity, equity and inclusion. But then you've also got, if you can Google those Got the snake Churching, That's what I was thinking. Those people that practice and they let a hundred snakes go around and they literally put the snake on to see, oh, is the poison going to kill me or not? And, you know, if I have enough faith in the snake, venom is not going to kill me if God loves me enough. And that's even here in the United States. I want to say it was in Kentucky. If it's not Kentucky, then Kentucky, please forgive me. I think it's in this state, actually. (laughs) It's what? It's in this state, actually. Like, I think there are some practitioners. Oh, yeah, here, too. Yeah, I heard that. Well, when I first came to Oklahoma, I heard about that. And I also was really... It was an awakening because on TV you got somebody who knocks the people in the head mm-hmm. and they are all of a sudden relieved of their suffering or changed or something happens mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And so I, it was very different because, yeah. of course, I lived outside of the country for a long time. So a lot of those things were looked upon. I mean, you know, people were just straight up and down Christians. I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I I was involved because when I lived overseas, I also did community relations or I was part of a group that explained, you know, would take people around. We had a, we had a big center and we had visitors in the center. We would open up the center in Germany on the days of the monuments 
and where people would be able to go to castles and places that normally they didn't have access to. And we had one, which was a culture center. And there were also educational facilities within this. Mm -hmm. So you could study on a, a doctorate level writings by Goethe and Schiller and some of these other people. And so we opened it to the public so they could come in and look and see what we were doing. So it wasn't like some big mysterious, mysterious cult because people actually thought maybe we were some kind of a cult. Mm. So we wanted to make sure people knew what we were about because that's important to us because it's important to have unity. If we, no matter what your faith is, that we all strive for a peaceful world because we're on the brink of destruction right now. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get over it and, you know, figure out how we're going to prevent nuclear holocaust, we might not see the continuance of humanity. Yeah, I would love to see more events with a diverse group of faith leaders. So if people are listening, please abide by that and try to make it manifest into reality. So as we are concluding, um, if you will put your closing remarks in, how do you personally combat religious intolerance? I personally, uh, through dialogue, that's the only way really, because through dialogue and through positive Feelings, I mean, that's the reason why we chant, to transform the inner Schweinehund, you know, that inner nature that is the will to kill. And basically that we can see other human beings and other life, life forms as um, having, being worthy of respect. So that's our main goal, to respect every other life form. <laughs> so that's how I see getting over intolerance because if you uh, are not, a, you know, if you can kill that aggression in yourself, society is a reflection of what's inside of you. So true. Absolutely. I think, I mean, first and foremost, like we have to admit that we don't know everything, right? Like that doesn't belong to us. Uh, you know, in Islam, we have, a, in the Quran, it says that, to, to murder one person is like murdering an entire humanity. To save one person, it's like saving an entire humanity. And again, it's to appeal to like kind of subsiding those animalistic natures that we have of ourselves. You know, the number one value that we have in our faith is we value knowledge above everything, above everything, knowledge. And whether that's a higher knowledge, um, an inward knowledge, you know, we say to, to know yourself is to know your Lord. And that's something that both Muhammad, Jesus, and, you know, Buddhism can agree with is to know yourself, yeah. right? It's to know yourself at the end of the day. Um, also realizing that you have, I, I think people don't know about history. Yeah, They don't know about history. They don't know, like when, we, you know, if we talk about Oklahoma, especially like an evangelical Christianity, right? When people start to realize where that history comes from, where the yeah. roots of that comes from, and how especially the way that it was brought here in America, they find disagreement. You know, um, um, amongst young people, most people are identifying as I don't know or like I'm not affiliated with anything right now because they're undergoing their own renaissance, but there's still a need for spirituality. 
you know, people are, are, are looking for it, but they don't necessarily know where to go because they see all the violence that's been out there. And so really what it is, is it's going to take, like it was with both of us, a lot of self-exploration to find that and encouraging that self-exploration. Same here. Same here. None of everything that I have learned came easy at all. Yeah. So if people wanted to come and practice with you, how would they contact you? Well, we are, uh, we have our center, uh, the Oklahoma Buddhist Center, SGI Buddhist Center, is on uh, on 12th Street between Chartel and Classen on the north side of Oklahoma City. And we are open and it's easy to find us and call or, you know, find out when we have meetings mm -hmm. and just reach out, you know, because we're open. We have, um, you know, now that well, COVID is supposed to be over, I mean, we've dropped a lot of those restrictions because we're a national here in America, we're national. And what is dictated to us according to the CDC and all those things, that comes from California and Chicago, which are our major centers, or Texas, Dallas. And so we're part of the central time zone because we're all over America, <laughs> you know. So uh, anyway, you can check us on our website, sgiusa.org, and find a Buddhist center near you. Awesome. Awesome. So if anyone wanted to just get up a, on a Sunday morning and come to uh, the mosque, is that allowed? Yeah, but we're Fridays. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can keep your weekend. Um, yeah. So we Muslims, we have this thing called Juma, which is basically the community getting together. It's the Ummah, the community getting together. Uh, we pray collectively on Friday for an afternoon prayer um, here in the Oklahoma City proper area. Um, the East side, which is where I usually go to attend my services is at Masjid Mu'min. Mm -hmm. Um, it's right next to the Clara health center. Um, so, and it's, it's kind of tucked away, so it can be hard to miss, but it's a, it's a pretty decent sized facility. Um, if you're more so on, um, South side OKC, there's Crossroads Islamic center. So there's a center over there, um, over by, Northwest 50th, there is American Muslim Association, which is a primarily Bengali and African constituency and congregation. And then if you're in Northwest OKC, there is the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City. Many of you know who Imam Imad and Chasi is. And so that's his home mosque um, and has folks from over 70 different nations from across the world. So you got options and there's culture infused with all of them, too. Wow, 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 wow. Again, thank you guys so much for the education and the information. You guys go check out something outside of your scope and actually live out diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.